All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. Welcome to POP01, Pain Mechanism Theories from Gates to Predictive Coding. Our faculty today is Kate Schopmeyer. Please help me welcome Kate Schopmeyer. Hi, John, are we on? Yes, it's on. Hi there. Uh, welcome. I'm a physical therapist. Um, as you can probably tell from my credentials listed up there. And I want to just put a caveat out here. I am not a historian, I'm not a neurologist, I'm not a neurobiologist, so I presented this topic as a point of conversation. I really think it's interesting to understand the history. I'm also not a historian, although I majored in um, German language and literature, so I have an interest in how people formulate ideas, and that's why I think this is a fascinating topic. So my hope today is to just present some of the primary mechanisms theories that have been postulated over the last several centuries and, and hopefully leave some time to just discuss and share ideas. I think that would be an interesting way to spend the time right before lunch. Um, and I'm going to repeat that caveat. Please correct me if anybody <laughs> finds my interpretation of this kind of historical information to be a little sideways. I'm happy to take feedback and, and input from anybody in the audience. So speaking of anyone, a neurologist in the room? Okay, you people can help me out. I don't claim to be any expert on, uh, on the mechanistic part of all this, but I think uh, there's a lot to be discussed. And I'm a physical therapist. How many others are with me today? Some were there this morning. Ah, a few of you, hi. And I'm going to put a plug in. We've got a whole physical therapy track this year. It's the first time ever that I know about in this conference. On Saturday, there's a, a bunch more physical therapists speaking on wonderful topics, so I hope some of you are going to stay. Uh, and if you were here this morning, um, thank you for coming back. <laughs> I didn't scare you off. So I, this morning, moved around a lot, and I'm going to stay planted in front of the podium just because this is a stretch topic for me. I'm not as comfortable as I was this morning, so I will be looking at notes, and that's not my usual speaking style, so bear with me. Um, and in general, I don't have financial uh, conflicts to disclose, but I do need to tell you that I work for the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. I work at the San Francisco VA Medical Center, so that's part of the San Francisco hospital system or healthcare system out in the Northern Bay Area, um, North California. So we there worked as a team. I work in an interdisciplinary team. I do a lot of um, intensive pain rehab. That's how I spend my time, mostly group teaching. Uh, a lot of individual, though, as well, over the course of the year, but I see people really infrequently on an individual basis. And I, I'm really interested in how our ideas about treatment get informed. Research is one way that we get informed about what to do clinically, but there we know there's a large gap between research findings and clinical practice, and I think some groups in research are better at others in translating things for us. But I also think that ideas get handed down through generations and through uh, stories and concepts that are just understood a certain way, so that regardless of what research says, we might hold on to beliefs about how things work. And so that's why I think it's important to just look at some of the ideas that have been passed down that still might be perpetuated, faulty as they are, and know that this is a talk about theories. And nobody really has a handle on pain. That's why we're all at this conference. We try really hard to do a better job, but it's still pretty mysterious. So no theory is perfect, but we're going to try to find some that can at least inform what we do day to day. 
So my goal here is to just simply present some of the most prominent theories throughout history, focusing more on the second half of the 20th century. Um, but I think you, you might want to know a little bit about what the predecessors had to say, because they were pretty influential thinkers. Um, and as I said, I was a literature major, specifically German literature in college. That was my undergraduate degree. And so I was particularly focused on writings of the Renaissance era. And back in the day of the Renaissance men and women, pain took on a really different form than it does now. So for a great many centuries, pain was considered to be something that existed outside of the body. That's not part of this slide, but we're getting here. Pain was considered something outside the body, right? Perhaps a punishment handed down from God or a test, a trial of mankind or an individual and his or her characteristics. Um, and Rene Descartes is credited with a lot uh, for changing pain and how we think about it. But what he really did was spark some thoughts and ideas. And I'm going to step off stage for just a second because I have a little visual aid because I think that's always fun. I forgot to bring it with me. So in his first writing, or the writing on, on pain, um, the Treatise of Man, he wrote at length on what he conceptualized as the nervous system or structural components of the nervous system. Nerves, the first writings on nerves, essentially, that historians know about, or at least that I could find in this research. And he talked about nerves as if they were hollow tubes, like a straw, with a filament or a cord inside them. And if you pull on the cord, Sufficiently, you'll get pain every time it dings pain, right? So it's a pretty mechanistic view. And that sparked a lot of research that came about and led to some of these more prominent theories that are to the left. So his 1664 publication was really the first of uh, a lot of different ideas about what goes on inside of the body. And uh, the intensity theory I'm just going to briefly cover because it was rather short-lived. Um, but it's important to note that everything that Rene Descartes sparked and started from his point on began to look at pain as a stimulus and as an input, certainly something that existed internally, which was an, a huge shift. But also important, it's considered an input. So we still talk about this today. I think this is interesting. We still say there's a pain signal. And I'm not convinced there's enough research um, hard data to support that idea. And I also think there's some, um, some unintended ill effects that could happen when we continue to talk about it in that way, as if it's something we can just block from ever reaching the brain and then not feel pain. We know that doesn't work. And as recently as 2002, people were still trying to excise herpetic neuralgia skin areas to treat pain. It does not work. Five-year post-study of the same subject showed they were all worse. And I don't have that reference up here, but I could get it if people want. So the intensity theory, based on some of what Descartes had written, um, the authors of this were starting to talk about different sensory receptors for tickle, touch, and pain, and that the different feelings resulted from the relative intensity of each individual stimulus. But the specificity theory really lasted a lot longer. Now, some of these dates, if you look up, Wikipedia doesn't agree with these, but the reference I've put at the top of the slide is, is primarily where I got the dates. And there are a number of more uh, scientists and psychologists and writers and thinkers that contributed to the bulk of what became these theories. Um, so to credit just one or two people is not accurate either, but these are some starting points that I've listed up here. 
So specificity theory was held for a long time and tested and tried and retested and, and debated um, for several centuries. And Charles Bell was a Scottish anatomist who thought that pain was a specific sensation with its own sensory apparatus, which is independent of touch and other senses. And this theory, um, which came about in official ways a bit later after Charles Bell and, and his colleague Shaw were really doing some of these writings, um, not that much later, but a bit later, uh, th that theory proposed that there were different kinds of sensory receptors, each adapt to respond to only one stimulus type. And we all know who studied, anybody who studied neurobiology or any kind of biology, um, and learning about touch and sensation will have heard the term, the nerm, uh, the, the nerm, the name, the name uh, Filippo Pacini, right? Pressure and vibration, Pacini corpuscles. Or George Meissner, Rudolf Wagner, light touch sensors. These are concepts that we still really understand and are taught today. Uh, and then probably most famously is Max von Frey, which um, he produced a whole bunch of research and pretty pivotal research in the late 1800s, um, identifying pain spots in the skin. And those could encode touch and temperature sensations. So these were some of, some of the initial um, writings and ideas and, and research that contributed to what we now call the specificity theory. And so by the mid-1890s, there was a pretty big debate after everything that had been written and all the people who came on the scene. So you could think about two camps. There was a specificity camp and an intensity camp. And by the, the late 19th century, Physiologists were largely in the specificity camp due to all the different research that had gone on up until uh, 1894. And the psychologists were largely in the intensity camp because something is intensely felt and experienced and there must be something other than just what's going on at the skin level to explain this. Um, so there were, there were quite a, a lot of debates at the time. And then if you look in um, some of the texts, by the end of the 1890s and, and Max von Frey's research largely was concluded, or their largest body concluded in 1897, um, both the textbooks in both fields, psychology and physiology, were tending to agree that specificity theory was really the main thing. But then the pattern theory came about um, when they started to write about uh, different cutaneous qualities that are actually the product of different temporal and spatial patterns of stimulation. So a number of other people uh, propose that all skin fiber endings except hair cells are identical and that pain is just produced by intense stimulation of these fibers and that the pattern of stimulation, whether it's predominantly large fiber nerve cells or predominantly small fiber nerve cells, the pattern will determine whether or not pain is produced. So specificity theory, pattern theory, hotly debated for many years, and this isn't going anywhere. Hold on. Stuck. John. <laughs> so if you think about how hot social debates are contested these days, Social media is a beast. I'm not even going to get started there. There's no end to the banter that goes on back and forth. But Ronald, thank you. Ronald Melzack and Patrick Wall had a better approach. They just wrote a paper that became one of the most highly cited and researched and um, uh, utilized paper in the 30 years following. The gate control theory came on the scene in 1965-67, depending on which publication of their paper you refer to. So here they were actually 
it was the most brilliant end to a debate that had gone on for centuries, um, explaining how physiologically both the specificity and the pattern theories could be true at the same time. So they attempted to bridge the gap between uh, the two theories that were predominant with a framework that was based on aspects of each theory that had been collaborated, uh, corroborated pardon me, by physiological data to that date. So here's what they proposed. So they proposed signals produced in primary afferents or the sensory nerve endings that are receiving information from out in the body. Signals produced by those primary afferents um, from stimulation in the skin would be transmitted into three regions of the spinal cord. And one of the most uh, important regions in this theory is termed SG, substantia gelatinosa, in, in the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. Um, and there was some modulation of sensory information that happened here and then projected onto transmission cells. And they, of course, acknowledged uh, both the existence of small fiber and uh, large fiber or small diameter, large diameter sensory nerve endings. Um, but what they proposed here was a mechanism at the spinal cord level that could open or close the substantia gelatinosa gate so that some of these transmissions could get through and others could not. Pretty brilliant. And as brilliant as it was, there have been plenty of things written um, to insubstantiate some of what they wrote in the 60s, and they themselves went back on what they said many times over. But 1990, 1999 was a, a, pretty a pretty famous writing by Ronald Melzack in which he said, you know, we had a lot of interesting things to say, but it, a lot of it wasn't quite right. It's much more complex than that. So this is a very complex slide that's hard to see. I appreciate that, but it is one of the original illustrations that was in his paper, so I wanted to include it. So what's important to note here is that pain is now considered and treated as a, an output, not an input, not a stimulus, right? And so what might be really difficult to see, and from my angle, I can't really see it, um, but some of you are familiar. Who's seen this before? The body self neuromatrix? Hi, yeah, okay. So it's essentially talking about how we have multiple contributing and overlapping factors that run the gamut from the physical sensory input to endocrine, endocrine um, and modulation, opioid, uh, endogenous opioid modulation pathways, and our immune system modifiers, um, autonomic regulation and modulation, visual and affective sensory input, all kinds of things from various parts of the body and the brain that are all contributing to a pain experience. Now, around the same time, uh, so Ronald Melzack is a psych psychologist, and around the same time, a lot of physical therapists were starting to think differently about how pain works. Um, and this is just a simplified version of the body self neuromatrix, so you can get a better snapshot of what elements are considered potential inputs and what might be consider considered outputs. And stress, of course, is in terms of stress chemicals being released when somebody's stress response system, the H HPA access is um, activated. So one of the most, um, I consider well-known physical therapists or physiotherapists, Louis Gifford in 1998 wrote about pain in a very different way, building upon what Melzack had proposed in the Body Self Neuromatrix. But you see the publication dates are pretty similar, 1998, 1999. Uh, There's a lot of chatter going on and publications were um, really changing how we looked at pain. And so in the uh, mature organism model, and by the way, if you're looking for some lighter, lighter pain readings, 
Uh, Aches and Pains by Louis Gifford is a trilogy, a three-part volume book on pain, and he does a lovely job, very accessible, in explaining really complex um, concepts in neurophysiology and pain. So Aches and Pains is something you could look up. He unfortunately died way too young. He's about 20, 20 years ahead of his time as far as his thought processes go. So I'll explain this just briefly. So it's at the bottom, if you see input processing output, input processing output. So if you're looking for a mechanistic approach, by comparison, if we think um, the Descartes models and everything that came after him, that would be analogous to a telephone, something that plugs into the wall and a signal comes through and you pick it up and you receive it on the other end. And very simply, if you didn't want to receive that message, you just cut the cord and the message doesn't ever get there. Right? And a lot of approaches to medicine, in, in, even in the, in the 21st century, um, mostly the 20th century, have attempted to do just that and not been very successful. Here, you could consider this process more like a thermostat, more like a system that is registering your request, testing the temperature, sensing the ambient temperature, processing what that needs in order to adjust to your request, and then pushing something into the external atmosphere to change that request, right? So input processing output. So a thermostat might be a little bit better of a metaphor, but I still don't love it. It's just the best I can come up with. I would love to hear other ideas. But here, and this is how I explain it to patients, and I do show this image to patients because I think it can help them understand how complex pain is without getting too complex in the descriptors or too much of these uh, diagrams that are really um, sometimes difficult to follow. So uh, there's a bunch of input from the tissue, a bunch of input from the environment. It all travels through our spinal cord, and it goes to the brain where there's scrutinizing that happens all the time, but our brains aren't empty, and it scrutinizes the information based on our own past experience, our own knowledge base, our own beliefs, which are influenced by culture, past experiences, and behaviors that we've observed, maybe been taught as we were children, or observed in our friends or family, and what do your patients say? Well, my friend tried X, and he has this, and I have that, and, and X should work for me too, right? So this model explains beautifully, I think, how input becomes output and feeds back into the system. So output includes some of those neurotransmitters and unhelpful um, chemicals that get released when we have a perpetual stress state like persistent pain. And Lorimer Mosley, if you don't know him yet, I would encourage you to look into some of his research and writings because he's been really launching not only the physical therapy field forward in terms of how we think about pain, but also um, just generally, he's a neuroscientist. He's a PhD in neuroscience, and he's, he's a real deep thinker and has a wonderful way of making hard information easy to understand. So this is a publication from 2007 where he's proposing we reconceptualize pain based on everything you see up here, where we consider pain as an evaluation of threat and a response to that evaluation of threat. And we need to consider the meaning. What does it mean if I can't use my back to work? What does that mean for my family? What does that mean for my identity? And how much do I expect to get better? Or what kind of anxiety goes along with this? Am I in the workers' comp system? Do I have social support? All these things are factored in in a split second. And then pain may or may, or may not be an output, an output, but it certainly can be modulated, dialed up, dialed down, based on all these factors. So tenets of modern pain science include these. And this is directly taken from Mosley's paper. So pain doesn't provide an accurate measure of tissues, the state of the tissues, um, and it's modulated by many factors, not just what's happening in the spinal cord level, but other things in the psychological and social domains, which of course we know affects our physiology directly. And the relationship between pain and the state of tissues becomes less predictable as pain persists. So this is not denying nociceptive pain or mechanical pain. It's simply saying it's more complex than that. 
And pain can be conceptualized as a conscious correlate of implicit perception that tissue is in danger. So building on that, uh, he and some colleagues, well, specifically um, Johann Vleyen, who is a psychologist, wrote a hypothesis about how, how we could think differently about pain. And this was fairly recently published, 2015. And the hypothesis is still just that, but they put this out there to try to um, spark some conversation and also really take a stance and say, we're going to try to do experiments to prove this or disprove it. And it has two tenets. So pain can be considered a response, not just a stimulus. And two, this is complicated to me, encoding non-nociceptive information predictively coincident with nociceptive input underpins response to future similar events. I'll read it again. Encoding non-nociceptive non information predictably coincident with nociceptive input underpins response to future similar events. So what that means to me is our brain learns to couple stuff together and become associative and predict what might happen and try to protect us. Which is exactly why you can have a patient say, well, now I just look at someone doing the dishes and it hurts my back. And to build further on that, he collaborated with a bunch of other people, um, one in his lab, Abby Tabor, and Mick Thacker, some of you who follow pain science on the physical therapy side of things will know his work. He did a lot of um, microbiology and immune biology work uh, in the realm of pain science. And um, this guy is a statistician, and very interesting CV if you look him up. So this is a complex paper. I'm not going to get into the meat of it, but I would encourage anybody who's interested to read it. So essentially, I'll try to break it down as succinctly as I can. It's based on the Bayesian model of statistical predicting, right? Anyone know Bayes and Bayesian modeling in mathematics? Okay, I'm not a mathematician, I'm not a historian, right? But the Bayesian design includes a concept called influence of prior beliefs. So every variable in its statistical probability mathematical equation can have its own set of unique characteristics, but a sequential analysis on, on combined components has to include outcome of earlier experiments in the design of the next experiment, okay? And the, what the authors write about this is that Perception is seen as a process that utilizes partial and noisy information to construct a coherent understanding of the world. Here, we argue that the pain experience is no different. Pain is based on incomplete multimodal information, which is used to estimate potential bodily threat. And in Bayesian inference models, um, they use a combination of, of Q combination causal influence, uh, sorry, causal inference, so inferring what might happen, and temporal integration. So here's an example they use. If we are standing in a position up here and we have a visual input and an auditory input, they might be in different geographic positions, but our brain synthesizes that, that data and tries to make sense of the location, and we triangulate that, and our brain gives us a perception of where that sound is coming from, right? And so by um, comparison in the pain world and how our brain might use the similar model to predict what's going on in our bodies, this is in a uh, research study. Uh, those who came this morning, you'll remember that Lerner Mosley and his colleague did a study in 2007 where they showed that the cue of using a red light in combination with touching the back of your hand with a cold metal device, the cue of a red light compared to the cue of a blue light results in higher pain experience. People experience higher levels of pain when there's a red light compared to a blue light. So the brain is making an inference about what that cue means and combining it into the prediction of what protection we might need. Right? So 
that's our almost 30 minutes and I would love to entertain some conversation about this and it's these last two papers have a lot to you know a lot to digest and I think it's interesting I think what if this is how pain works thank you for coming yeah question Ah, so the gentleman up front says he thinks it's exactly true, this predictive modeling, Bayesian uh, mathematical modeling, because it's what phantom limb is, is doing with people. Yeah, can you say more about that? Why do we have pain? Why is it important? Right. And I always answer it's a protective response. Right. Yeah. Memory. Memory, yeah. Memory is lots of different. And where's the memory center in the brain? There isn't one. It's like, a myo, it's, like a, it's like a fungus where every cell is connected and it all, all the different regions of the brain are working together to create and encode memories. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Hyperalgesia, central sensitization. It is certainly covered in this last statistical account paper. Um, and what they do in this paper is they propose some of these tenets and then they say, here's how we can actually break down some of the main concepts that we already have researched for in pain, and here's how we might um, put it into this other framework and 